This is Euroscopic, your weekly roundup of what happened, what's happening, and what might happen in and to Europe. In partnership with EU Observer, we bring you insights and reporting from their people on the ground across the European Union and beyond. I'm Wayne Bluecroft, a journalist based in Berlin and writer of the Germany Substack newsletter called The Schland. And I'm Martin Gack, also based in Berlin, Germany, and the author of Inconclusive Thoughts. We are recording on Monday, February 19th. We will be discussing the new EU Red Sea mission, more Russian sanctions possibly on the table, bilateral Ukraine agreements. Of course, I will have some takeaways from the Munich Security Conference later in the show. And given when we're recording, as always, events may have changed by the time you hear this episode, wherever your ears go for podcasts. Ahead in this episode, we'll be talking to Anton Shehobtsov, a contributor to the EU Observer and also a scholar uh, in Vienna. And later in the show, we will also be talking to Ian Bremer, who, just like William here, has just returned from uh, the Munich Security Conference to see what are his uh, takeaways, uh, conclusions and perhaps to shed a little light on what has been otherwise apparently a very somber occasion. Is that right, William? Oh, it was uh, somber, reflective, uh, and as always, very uh, self-involved, shall we say. So that's later in the show. But first, what do you have for this week, William? Right. Well, I am coming out of this vortex that is the Munich Security Conference, so I'm, I'm trying to remember a world beyond that. Of course, so much is connected to it. Uh, leading into the Munich Security Conference, we, of course, had this this flurry of bilateral agreements that Ukraine signed with a variety of European countries, uh, France, Germany, the UK. I find these bilateral agreements fascinating um, and the statements and sort of the spin around them. Of course, leaders always want to put the best foot forward, want to make the most positive case for whatever policy they're putting forward. But it is almost in my sense, in acknowledgement, I won't say defeat, I think that's too strong, but an acknowledgement of problems, right? That it's getting harder and harder to to find this multilateral uh, common voice that we saw a year ago, or certainly in the immediate aftermath of Russia's invasion, full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. It's getting harder to keep that coalition together. So you're, you're resorting to plan B, which is making these bilateral agreements that can maybe go faster because you only have one party to deal with and not 10 or 20 or 50, as in the case of the Ukraine contact group. I'm estimating there, of course. Uh, I can speak most authoritatively to the German one. It's an interesting document, and it's it's public. It's it's in English as well for those who can't speak German. So anyone can go to the German government website and read the document for themselves. Um, on one hand, it does you know you know put its money where its mouth is and commit a lot of aid and support uh, to Ukraine over a 10-year period. The agreement's for 10 years. On the other hand, it's not very clear, and we're hearing this from other places, it's not very clear what exactly the objective is, what victory means uh, when talking about if Ukraine is under threat or in the event of another uh, show of aggression from Russia. And I think, well, wait a minute, there, there, there's a current show of aggression from Russia. That's not ending. So the wording is very, very interesting, um, about, about w which I think tells us a lot about fears about where things are going with Ukraine, the lack of U.S. support, regardless of Donald Trump is president or not, there's an isolationist streak and a, a, a pro-Russia or Russia-friendlier streak in the U, in U.S. politics. Um, so a lot of it is an acknowledgement, a kind of a realpolitik view of where things are or might be heading with Ukraine. To some degree, it does look from the distance uh, as a consolation prize of sorts. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Particularly, I mean, in the context of a lot of a flurry of flurry of talk about um, the Ukraine uh, candidacy for NATO being now uh, within reach, which um, in my mind remains nonsense. But um, you know, the conversation is being had, or that that the the noise is there. Um, on my part, I'm actually paying uh, quite a bit of attention at uh, Poland this week because uh, there's been. Oh, there is a party. Because you love pierogies, that's why. I love pierogies. I love goonki. Uh, and I actually really like Warsaw itself, uh, not the weather. Uh, but it turns out that this week there is uh, a parliamentary investigation into the use of 
Pegasus, which is uh, an Israeli spy software um, that was deployed by the previous government, uh, not completely clear against whom, but very likely against opposition and independent journalists. Uh, this is obviously uh, a further attempt at sort of, you know, paying blame, political blame, etc., on the previous government, the PIS. Um, what is interesting about this case is that it might really have European-wide uh, ramifications because the fact is that the Israeli uh, contracting of this software, which emanates actually from uh, essentially an industry very, very close to the Israeli government, it actually, the, the deployment of this software has been, it seems, European-wide. Uh, it's not clear how many governments and how far have actually deployed this, uh, but Presumably, we're going to hear a bit about this kind of thing over the next couple of months as this inquiry continues to unfold, because obviously one of the questions that very likely will be dealt with is, uh, you know, how is it exactly that Pegasus got uh, into Polish hands or the hands of the Polish government? Right. It, and it's also part of this larger purge of the new government of Donald Tusk to sort of <laughs> erase the legacy of the PIS uh, in Polish politics, I think to sort of safeguard against them coming back or something even more, uh, you know, illiberal coming back or after, after them, I think, I think they're trying to maybe future proof Polish democracy. Is that maybe too much of a stretch? I mean, I don't think that, so the two things to say is I don't think that that would, uh, be a remedy to the PIS. I mean, reading them of, of, uh, Pegasus or spying software, the other, and the bigger question is, uh, this Polish government remains, uh, perfectly friendly, uh, to Israel, perfectly friendly to its contractors, uh, and at the very same time, um, I do not foresee uh, Tusk ridding himself of very powerful weapons to actually uh, look into what is that actually the PIS is doing. Uh, although, of course, this is just pure speculation. But I mean, if the if the if the tool is powerful enough, then there would be good reasons for the Polish government to want to keep it. Uh, but again, I think it's important to emphasize that this is not a Polish story. This really is. Uh, not just a European story, it's much broader because it seems that this uh, software, which actually can hack into, into private phones, um, has actually been deployed quite widely. Right. So, it was that it was a big story, you know, when it first broke, and I'm sure it's still coursing through all many of our phones, hopefully not mine, but we would never really know. Uh, it hasn't gone away. What other story do you have? Well, just today... Um, you know, uh, the foreign the foreign ministers, the EU's foreign ministers met and approved the EU, an EU naval campaign in the Red Sea to protect shipping lanes against the Houthi attacks. Of course, the Houthis have been launching attacks against various Western shipping, military and civilian, uh, in their alliance with Hamas uh, and opposition to Israel's bombing of Gaza. One of the many chess pieces in that region that risks spilling over and escalation into much even scarier things, what we're seeing already, if that's even a possibility. But I guess things could always get worse. What I found interesting is that um, it's the foreign ministers that approve uh, ostensibly a military mission. It's not the defense ministers. I think that speaks volumes to how the EU sees itself and, and brings up those questions that we, that we and others are asking about what is the, def the defense posture of the European Union. Uh, you would think this would be a military matter. Although, as we see in many member states, the military militarification of foreign affairs that even that you see uh, foreign ministries, you know, Adelina Baerbock uh, over the course of the Munich Security Conference, she herself came out and said, we need to spend more on military. We need better, bigger defense budgets. Uh, we need to beef up our defenses. So even foreign ministers whose job ostensibly is the opposite of the military, it's peace, it's diplomacy. Uh, even they are getting into the military game, but that could very well be to fill the gap left by the lack of defense thinking and, and military thinking in, in and around the EU. Meanwhile, in Brussels, the idea of actually a, a commission um, precisely dealing with defense issues is apparently gaining traction. Um, in any case, the other big story that happened uh, at the beginning of the, right before actually the MSC uh, began, was the announcement of the death of Alexei Navalny in Russia, in uh, essentially what is a gulag, so a penal colony far in the Arctic Circle. 
We're going to be discussing precisely that story, its implications, uh, and the kind of message that it sends uh, right ahead. Here we have with us Anton uh, Shihovtob, who is the director of the Center for Democratic Integrity in Vienna. Uh, he's also a visiting professor at the Central European University. And he is an author, also a uh, contributor at the European EU Observer, who focuses on far right and its connection to Russia. Uh, thank you for being with us, Anton. Thank you, Martin, for having me. Uh, so, um, you know, a lot of this weekend really started around uh, Thursday, Friday, uh, when we heard that uh, Alexei Navalny uh, had died uh, in Russian detention. And um, strangely, um, it seems to go without saying for most of the international press that um, Navalny was killed by Putin and his operatives. I guess the first question that I have for you is, uh, what do you make of the timing of his death and how do you, how do you read this? Uh, Martin, I do believe it's a, a tricky question about the timing because as we know, uh, the Kremlin had started, um, you know, had begun uh, trying to kill Navalny several years ago already. It just... Um, you know, thanks to the Russian emergency doctors, thanks to uh, German doctors, and probably even luck uh, that Navalny survived an attempt on his life using this nerve agent Novichok uh, several years ago. So what happened now, I think, was uh, in a way finally carried out, you know, but the order had been given uh, several years ago. I don't think that the there is, um, you know, um, some uh, thoughts or considerations in the Kremlin about the timing because the conditions in which Navalny was held in that prison camp or that, you know, uh, penal colony, it could have happened any time. Um, the conditions did not give him any chance of surviving. And again, given his uh, history of the, the, this poisoning, how it affected his general health. Uh, again, it could have happened any time. So I would be cautious about, um, you know, talking or discussing the, the actual timing, whether the Munich conference, the security conference, or even the Russian presidential election, or so-called Russian presidential election. Anton, I'm, I'm wondering how we should best understand Navalny and his legacy. He was a very imperfect person by any measure. Um, and it seems like in a moment like this, it becomes either or. In order to criticize Vladimir Putin, you have to mythologize and lionize uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, of course, he had his shortcomings. I think the most important thing about Alexei Navalny, and this is something that I, I think his legacy, it will, it will be, um, you know, 100% his legacy, is that his activism... His belief uh, that a different Russia is possible uh, gave many people hope that at some point, maybe at some point in the future, Russia could go or could take a different path um, from the reports that uh, we have in the media and elsewhere. There were also parts of the Putin regime who had that hope that that, that Navalny could become just you know, a symbol of a different Russia at some point in Russia's history. And that is now gone, yeah? And, they, and, and, and uh, Navalny took this with him. I, I don't really want to go uh, too much into discussion about the sort of shortcomings of Navalny and his movement, but it was such, a, such an important symbol, personal symbol, that somehow also undermined the strength of his movement. And um, it's not a given that Navalny's movement can survive his death. On that note, um, how do you see this post-Navalny Russia? What do you think that happens to other uh, opposition figures? I mean, some very prominent ones like Karamusa, who is actually uh, in confinement. Um, 
how do you think that this this period looks? Do you think that we are now at the end yeah. of any serious opposition to to Putin? Uh, Navalny was, I would say, the only active Russian politician in opposition to the Kremlin regime who still lived in Russia. And um, uh, his his return to Russia uh, that was a controversial that was a controversial move on his part, but that was also part of this whole vision of his vision of Russia. Yeah, if you're a Russian politician, you have to be in Russia uh, despite all odds. So the the majority, of course, now of Russian opposition activists, they are they are emigrates. Yeah, they emigrated uh, from Russia because they feared for their life, and uh, that is uh, quite substantiated a fear. So yeah, uh, you still have people like uh, Vladimir Karamurza and Ilya Yashin and some others being in jail. I do believe that with the death of Navalny, unfortunately, now the Kremlin basically has no, you know, red lines. Yeah. I guess also that Vladimir Karamurza is probably not, uh, not in the condition as bad as Navalny was, but something similar. What, what, what the Kremlin is doing is that this is basically just a slow death. This is just a slow execution with, you know, uh, torture. They want to break people. Uh, they want to just annihilate them. And uh, the slow nature of that execution is also a message to uh, Russian opposition figures that something like this can also happen to you. And because probably you're not as famous as Navalny, nobody will even think about you outside of you know uh, your own family and social circles. I also think that the Kremlin, after the so-called elections in March, uh, this year, it may become even more repressive. Probably also the a new wave of mobilization will be announced. Putin doesn't want to do it before the election because now uh, the Kremlin's objective is, of course, to, uh, to say and then present this idea that everything is proceeding according to the plan. So there is no there is no need to mobilize more people. But after the elections, uh, they will. I guess they will have uh, an opportunity to say, well, now, uh, you know, we can do some even more drastic, or take even more drastic measures you know, concerning the mobilization for the war. So it sounds like a consolidation of Putin's power, uh, even less of an understanding or a vision of what a post-Putin Russia could ever look like, although Vladimir Putin is human as far as you know, he has to die at some point. Um, even if he's never overthrown. but And you're shifting away, and I'm glad you are, you're shifting away to the broader um, aspects of Putin's policy and his interests, especially in regards to Ukraine. And when I was at the Munich Security Conference, I'd heard a lot of contradictory statements. It seems like in the West, pro-Ukrainian people who want to stand up to Putin and, and keep fighting for Ukraine, they seem to have difficulty acknowledging that time is on Putin's side. But at the same time, don't seem quite know, don't, they don't seem to know what to do about that. What is your assessment on where things stand now with Ukraine? Time is on Putin's side, still considering that he's a human being. Yeah. Uh, but there is another thing that uh, I would add to this. It's not only that uh, time is on his side. Uh, what is also on his side is this um, a historical mission that he chose for himself, a historical mission of a ruler of Russia that made Russia a country which everyone around is basically afraid of. Yeah. This is a very this is a very Soviet understanding of what the great power is about. And Putin is, you know, is is building into it this image into this perspective uh in his recent speeches um you know that he he, he will compulsively deliver a historical lecture to to any audience that he talks to and uh you also see that he is considering what is happening now he's considering it as as an eternal fight eternal war between the west and russia or between the west and the east and then russia is representing that east 
So he's talking in historical terms. He's he's talking in terms of you know centuries, even probably you know millennia. This this is his uh, uh, this is his obsession, and uh, you know a person who who thinks in in centuries, who thinks even in millennia, who thinks of this you know eternal war is extremely dangerous. You know this obsession makes him very uh, very unpredictable in a way. So on the on the one hand, yes. We can predict that he will continue the fight. There is no way for him uh, to back out. There is no way for him to end what he is doing because this is his mission. This is he he he, he built this mission for himself, and he will not stop uh, on his own. Uh, there are on the on the Western side, there are very few people with with an, or with this historical understanding of what is going on or what the product is. Where, talking about of course now you will hear european politicians european leaders uh saying that the, this period of peace is over we are uh moving into this multipolar world and multipolar world will um automatically mean uh, more conflicts more uh, rising powers reclaiming or reclaiming what they thought um, is theirs re reanimating some historical traumas, reanimating past conflicts. So this is a very, very dangerous time, and I do believe that we need to think about what is happening in Ukraine, but also elsewhere um, in Europe. From this from this perspective, that Putin is he is willing and he has time on his side to reconfigure the international world order. Anton, thank you very, very much for, for your insights. We really appreciate visiting us. Of course, the invitation is always open for you to drop by. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Thanks very much for joining Euroscopic. My pleasure. Uh, Ian, we were both at the Munich Security Conference, but we're just coming back from a we're always a whirlwind. What were some of your major takeaways? There's no question this was a really challenging security conference. The 60th anniversary, um, it certainly didn't feel like we were celebrating very much. Uh, the Russia war is going badly uh, with uh, right at the beginning, uh, the, uh, the uh, killing uh, of Navalny. Uh, I say killing, it's fairly obvious that he was taken out by the Kremlin. Um, the fact that Zelensky was there and uh, had just uh, lost the first major town slash territory uh, in almost a year on the ground, and that's largely because the West isn't providing the level of military support they need to defend their front lines. Um, the Middle East, the Qatari prime minister being quite unhappy uh, with the potential to actually make progress in any short-term deal on further hostages. The Americans getting angrier and angrier at the Israelis, Israel feeling more and more isolated. Uh, and the backdrop to all of this, everyone worried about what's happening in the United States in 2024 uh, and the elections. So, I mean, the conversations I was having, I mean, I, we can certainly talk about, um, you know, some details there and what that means, but this was... This is not a happy security environment, uh, certainly not from the West. So picking up on the Ukrainian story, there has been really a lot of talk about supporting Ukraine uh, all the way to victory. Um, some of these promises really ring quite hollow now, but do you have a sense at this stage, um, what is for any of the Western community, what does victory actually mean? So are we talking about Russia in Ukraine? Are we talking defeating Russia, uh, you know, uh, in general? Are we t talking about defeating Putin? Or is there really just a sense that, you know, uh, victory at this point is just walking away with whatever Ukraine can get out of Russia? I, I think we're going to have to redefine uh, what victory means. I think that in the early months of the war, uh, there was uh, exaggerated notions, uh, especially because Zelensky became such a phenomenon uh, across the world, not just the West. This young, charismatic former entertainer 
uh, that was, you know, traveling to the front lines, wearing his fatigues, um, and uh, and trying uh, against all uh, expectation uh, to defend his much smaller country against the war crimes and onslaught and illegal invasion of the Russian uh, forces. Uh, that is not where we are today. But that doesn't mean Ukraine can't win. And I'm, I'm, no, you can't define a victory as the West getting out. I mean, you know, this is not a mission accomplished moment. Um, uh, we, we can have an honest conversation with each other. But I think a, a, a victory, a real victory, um, would be the Ukrainians being able to have a future that is uh, better for themselves and their children than anything they could have expected before 2014. And what that would mean would be um, hard security guarantees by the West, eventually leading to NATO membership uh, that would ensure that the Russians could not attack the remaining territory uh, that Ukraine still occupies. Secondly, Ukraine having a clear path towards European Union integration with all of the political and economic reforms within Ukraine that are incumbent upon that. And third, having the resources to reconstruct their territory and their economy and their school system and, and, and uh, to have a vibrant uh, Western democracy. And, and I do think that those three things are possible. Uh, and if they were to happen, that would be a win for Ukraine. It wouldn't be fair uh, that nothing would would bring back the the ten thousand plus civilians that have been killed, the seventy thousand soldiers that have been killed, the hundreds of thousands of casualties. Nothing would undo the war crimes. No war reparations are likely to be paid by the Russians. I doubt very seriously we're going to seize the frozen assets that the Europeans presently have access to, but that still would end up being a win for Ukraine. Uh, the problem is that the ability to get that win is diminishing. Um, the window is closing, and I'm not sure the political will for it exists uh, sufficiently across the transatlantic alliance. Ian, you mentioned about those security assurances in the in the lead up to Munich security. We saw a slew of bilateral security assurances, which to me immediately struck me uh, or reminded me of the of the Budapest memorandum. I heard the echoes of the Budapest memorandum memorandum where Western countries basically assured Ukrainian security for giving in exchange for giving up those Soviet nuclear weapons. We all saw where those security assurances have, have gone over the last couple decades. Do you think the First of all, what's the impact of that legacy on these new bilateral um, uh, agreements? And do you think these bilateral agreements with Germany, with France, with others, get us to that point that you were just mentioning, to a more secure, more democratic Ukraine? Yeah, let's also remember that the Budapest uh, Accords were also signed by Russia. <laughs> yes, yes, very good. Absolutely. Uh, but no, you're right. No support on side. You're right, of course. Um, and uh, I think that these security guarantees that are so far provided are not adequate. As I said, it has to lead to NATO. And and I think you're probably talking about something that would require some stationing of troops on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to defend uh, the Ukrainian territory on the front lines. It doesn't mean that they're going to put themselves in harm's way to uh, regain territory that Russia presently occupies, but it does send a very clear red line, a tripwire. That's a hard thing to do, uh, yeah. but it's absolutely possible. And uh, it is very clear that the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine uh, is precisely because they didn't have those tripwires, precisely because post-2014, for almost 10 years, the Russians got away with it and the West, just, West didn't care. Uh, Ian, do you do you lend any credence to Putin when he tells Tucker Carlson uh, that um, he has no um, interest in Poland or the Baltics? Um, uh, no, I, I don't. I, I think he has interest, but I I also think that Putin has been very careful um, to ensure that this war does not directly spread into those countries. You'll remember. When there was a uh, a couple of Polish villagers, I think they were farmers, uh, that were killed 
um, by a missile strike, and it turned out that it was a Ukrainian air defense uh, missile that had misfired. Um, but in the immediate aftermath, it was not clear. And the Russians did everything possible to show photographs and other intelligence support, say, hey, 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 this wasn't us. We weren't involved in this. Now, if Putin, you know, was interested in really showing some leverage, you know, especially with Poland providing all this military support and all the supply chain for uh, arming the Ukrainians, leading to more Russians getting killed. Why, why wouldn't he want some uncertainty? Why, why wouldn't he say, yeah, I mean, if you're going to keep doing that, then if, if there's going to be collateral damage, Poland might get hit. And he didn't do that at all. Uh, he's been very, very careful uh, not to take any steps that could lead um, to a, a, an attack, a direct attack on a NATO country. Now, if Trump becomes president and it turns out that he becomes publicly unwilling to provide uh, military support uh, for uh, NATO allies, that he's unwilling to defend them, uh, maybe Putin might start to take some further chances, take some further risks. But that is not the environment we're in right now. Right. That's and that's something that, that that was almost a contradiction or almost a denial that I was feeling a lot when I talked to people at Munich that that time is on Putin's side. He doesn't have the democratic clock. He doesn't have the electoral clock that uh, Western countries do. Uh, was that your sense as well? Um, look, I, I think that Putin certainly believes that time is on his side. Um, I think he believes. And, you know, the Obama uh, made this point. Uh, when he was president, he, he said that the problem with Ukraine is that um, Russia's always going to care a lot more about it than the United States will. And so ultimately, Russia has asymmetric advantages uh, on the ground as a consequence of that. Now, would Obama have said that about the Baltic states? I think Obama would have tried to avoid answering that question, frankly, uh, because Obama, the analyst, would feel differently than Obama, the political leader. Um, but but um, over time, it is certainly true uh, that uh, the the West is losing interest. I mean, you know, I spent three days in Munich and everyone's talking about Ukraine and Zelensky is there. But in the United States, people aren't asking me about Ukraine. In the United States, people are asking me about the Middle East and they're asking me about China and they're asking me about the U.S. elections. Uh, Ukraine is, you know, frequently doesn't even get a, a mention. Uh, and so, yeah, the Americans have already kind of lost sight of of a President Biden that said, we will support you for as long as it takes, whatever it takes. That is not where the Americans are even months after that. And it's and Putin knows that very clearly. And we definitely want to get to Gaza and what's going on in the Middle East in a second. But you also mentioned asymmetric advantage. And one way that you even out that asymmetrical advantage is this new talk of nuclear weapons of nuclear proliferation in Europe. And this, to me, I don't get surprised by a lot of developments, but this new talk about nuclear weapons in Europe is a surprise to me, uh, given the history of that here on at least the European side of NATO. Uh, what have you been hearing in terms of, I mean, we know that Boris Pistorius came out against it, said Germany doesn't need nuclear weapons. Let's not talk about that. Nonetheless, this is on people's minds about a nuclear deterrent for the European Union. Uh, I thought the more significant conversations were around the creation of a defense commissioner, uh, mm. likely Radek Sikorsky, uh, that Ursula von der Leyen floated. Uh, I think the creation of a, a, a common EU defense and industrial policy that will strengthen the ability of the Europeans to both be a strong partner, ongoing partner of the Americans, and also as a hedge in case the worst were to happen and the United States decides it's no longer as interested in playing that role. That, that, that's where I think the movement is right now um, in Europe. It's not really the headlines, the more salacious headlines around uh, we might be considering nukes. So a couple of questions from Gus. Uh, the first one is, uh, I assume you heard Josep Borrell uh, over the last couple of days uh, essentially go out and say, without naming them, uh, telling the Americans that if they really have an issue with the Israeli um, over the top, as, as Biden put it, bombing of Gaza, then the U.S. should stop giving them weapons. 
it's not only Israel, as you mentioned, that seems to be more isolated, but the U.S. seems also to be essentially going in that direction with its support of, of the Israeli position. Um, do you think that there is any fallout? I mean, do you see any distancing between the European position and the American position? How do you read this? Yeah, I do. But I, I also think that, you know, uh, the United States, by dint of its incredible power, is not a country that can be isolated. It can be isolated on an individual issue, but the implications of that more broadly are obviously constrained in a way that they are, would not be if we were talking about Russia or Iran or North Korea. So, I mean, first, let's level set on what it means to isolate the United States. Um, more broadly, uh, Biden is not happy about where the Israelis are, and you may have seen that he has publicly shifted his position uh, in willingness to allow a Security Council resolution that would call for a temporary ceasefire. Uh, that was something that he was strongly opposed in the weeks and months uh, past, uh, but now appears to be prepared to support. Now, um, that's not very much, uh, and it's not going to end the fighting, uh, but it does reflect uh, both the fact that Biden is angry at the Israelis and feels like Netanyahu and the Israeli war cabinet is stringing him along continuing to engage in major uh, bombing and ground invasion, leading to massive civilian casualties after telling Biden and Biden's cabinet every week, oh, we're going to be wrapping up this phase. We're going to reduce the attacks. It'll be done in a couple of weeks. And it's not. Um, and, you know, they don't he doesn't like Netanyahu um, and and he doesn't feel like the military is being straight with him. So, uh, but how much influence does the United States ultimately have? It is an election year. Uh, Israel is the most important ally of the United States in the Middle East. Um, the Republicans support Israel in a, uh, a non-nuanced way. So uh, Biden has vulnerability there. Um, and also U.S. military support for Israel is about 12.5% of their peacetime defense budget. So it's meaningful, but it's not like the Israelis wouldn't be able to fight without the Americans. This is not like Ukraine we're talking about. And ultimately, especially Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, I think would love a fight with the Americans because it would show the Israeli people that this is the only guy that is standing up uh, for um, avoiding a two-state solution, which the Israelis see as the creation of a Hamastan in Gaza. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that Biden has a lot of leverage here, and I'm not sure Biden wants to be seen as employing the leverage he has and having it fail. Do you think that there is anything at this point sort of on the table that can actually either curb or stop uh, the Israeli bombing of Gaza? Um, I, I think that um, we can get, we still can get, a temporary ceasefire on the back of the uh, handing over of significant numbers of hostages. I think that's on the table. Uh, U.S. cabinet members, the Qataris, others have been working that issue. There's still space for that. I think it's likely to happen, but ultimately Hamas has to make it happen. And none of us have visibility into what, what Hamas is thinking and the conditions that they are negotiating under from you know tunnels deep under, under Gaza. We don't know. Uh, but I think the Israelis are willing to cut that deal. I still think we are very far from anything that looks like a sustainable peace in the region. Anything that looks like uh, Palestinian civilian governance of Gaza that would be remotely acceptable to the Palestinians and the Israelis. Also, security provided by anybody, um, Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan, you name it, um, that would work. Um, and uh, that would avoid uh, a permanent Israeli occupation. I, I don't think we're close to that. Are you able to draw us, help us understand that bridge between U.S. and Western interests in Ukraine and U.S. and Western interests with Israel and the war there? Sort of these competing, you know, what, what many members of what we call, what I don't like calling the Global South, but it's called the Global South, that see a lot of contradictions there and are very hesitant to help out the U.S. and, and, and Western powers in some of their, uh, you know, geopolitical goals due to what's happening uh, very in a very concrete sense uh, in Gaza. Is there a bridge there to be drawn? I mean, it's always kind of, it's two very different situations. 
Um, but there is some kind of thread there to connect. Well, I mean, one thread is that the United States would like to see an end of the war in both places. Um, but um, what it means to end the war um, is very different. Uh, ending the war in Ukraine uh, has to be uh, getting the Ukrainians to a stable and sustainable place and stopping the Russians from continuing this fight against their civilians illegally. Um, the ending the war in the Middle East um, is uh, about minimum security expectations that would allow the Israelis to stop fighting. The Israelis right now are the aggressor. They are the aggressor with far more power military capabilities in response to uh, terrorist attacks against them on October 7th. Um, the Ukrainians um, are the weaker power. Um, and in both cases, the United States is trying to convince um, an ally uh, that it doesn't completely agree with um, to move uh, the needle uh, towards more stability. Uh, but, but again, very different cases. In the case of Ukraine, that somewhat intransigent friend um, is very, very weak. In Israel, that somewhat intransigent friend is far more powerful than anybody else in the region. So they're very different kinds of challenges. Everyone, you know, you were mentioning how Munich Security Conference, everyone was asking you about America and the Trump, Trump, no Trump. I mean, Trump or no Trump, we, the United States has an isolationist streak. We see that in Congress right now. And the EU is heading into elections where there is, whether you want to call it isolationist or Russian friendly uh, or, or whatever, they just, you know, anti-migrant, they just want to kind of, you know, sew up the borders. Um, what would you say is sort of Europe's position here going into European elections in June and then forward moving ahead to uh, U.S. elections in November? What's the, what's the play here? Uh, the play should be uh, to make Europe as strong as possible before one of the greatest acts of instability that Europe has ever had to face, <laughs> you know, and it's certainly since the Cold War is over, um, more Europe is better in this environment. Uh, following Brexit, Europe got stronger. Following the pandemic, Europe got stronger. Following the Russian invasion, Europe got stronger. You now see Europe with uh, stronger common policies on energy, stronger common policies on vaccines, on healthcare. What Europe needs now is stronger common policies on defense. Uh, I mean, you know, Trump is right when he talks about the Europeans not willing to spend 2% on defense. I, I mean, if, if the Europeans don't care about their own troop readiness and their own national security capabilities um, to the extent that it weakens NATO and it empowers Putin, uh, which it does, then what should the consequences be? I mean, for years and years, the Europeans say they want to do this and they don't. What should the consequences be? I mean, should they be nothing? Because, I mean, apparently the consequences from the European perspective, from Burrell's perspective, um, the consequences should be nothing. I, I, don't, I don't agree with Trump that the consequences should be Russia should be allowed to invade countries that don't pay 2%. I, I think that's unacceptable. I mean, uh, Trump is in part just looking to be a, a bombastic entertainer and in part, you know, he, he loves um, mixing it up and causing trouble. Uh, but uh, I do think it's reasonable that uh, if you don't actually pay to support your own defense, that maybe you shouldn't have access to high-tech American Material. Maybe you shouldn't have access to as much U.S. intelligence. Maybe you shouldn't have access to the same military exercises. Maybe you should be suspended as an ally for a while. I think those are reasonable things to do, because if you did that consistently over time, you would actually change behavior. I mean, there are a number of countries that treat that have treated NATO membership as unseriously as Viktor Orban has treated EU membership. And, and as we've seen, the EU was being nice and patient, but ultimately needed to play hardball with Orban because he was going to completely stop the Europeans from getting this $50 billion done for the Ukrainians. And that, that, there's a degree of that that has to happen 
on the part of the United States as well, with some support by Poland and the Baltic states and the rest. I mean, the amusing thing about Trump's statement, of course, that if you don't take pay 2%, um, that the Russians can invade you. Well, I mean, it's precisely the countries that Russia could invade that are paying a lot more than 2%. So uh, it's, it's, it, it's not like what Trump is saying actually means anything in terms of the, the vulnerability of those countries on the ground. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, the Russians are thinking about invading Canada anytime soon, which pays 1.3%. And there's a reason they pay 1.3%, because they have no enemies that are anywhere near them. Although with the Arctic melting due to climate change, who knows who will come over, you know, uh, over that side of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and indeed, the only place where the, the, the Canadians are actually spending more on their defense these days um, is in the Polar North for precisely that reason. So, Ian, uh, as a final question, and uh, assuming that you indeed have a geopolitical, geostrategic crystal ball that you can uh, consult, uh, what do you think the world will look like for the next MSC? Where, what kind of environment do you think we'll be looking at? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball. Like, I have no idea who the next president's going to be in the U.S., and that's a huge question. Uh, right now, if the election were today, Trump would win. If you made me bet, I'll say Trump 60-40, but I have very low confidence around that call, so that's not the point. Um, I do think that the Americans will end up providing additional military support for Ukraine. Uh, for 2024, and I think their ability to continue to mostly hold their front lines in terms of defense will be there. I do believe that. That is a that that's a that's a a call I could easily be wrong on, but I I do feel that way having spoken to the senators and and members of the House and the congressional delegation over the last several days. I think there's been a lot of momentum there, some of which because of Navalny, some of which because of the Europeans getting their 50 billion done. Uh, and some of which, because ultimately the Speaker of the House, I think, doesn't want to see this fail under him, the so-called accidental speaker. Um, I think U.S.-China will still be fairly well managed. And I think the, the Middle East will be in materially worse position than it is today. So um, with, with, the under with, the, with the caveat that the United States is a massive uncertainty um, and that the United States, U.S. democracy is in crisis and its, its, its institutions are getting weaker. And irrespective of who wins, um, it's not clear that the United States is going to be seen in as stable a way as it has over the past decades. Um, I think the next Munich Security Conference is going to be really challenging. Uh, Ian Brammer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, where, of course, you can also catch his podcast, uh, G Zero World with Ian Brammer. That comes out about every week, wherever your ears go for podcasts, just like you come to Euroscopic. Ian Bremer, thanks so much for joining Euroscopic. Great talking to you guys. See ya. So two hefty interviews down in this episode. Uh, let's move on to what's ahead. So what's ahead, Martin? Well, uh, von der Leyen just announced that she's indeed going to be uh, trying to uh, keep her job for the next term of the European Commission. So I um, I think it's safe to assume that most eyes will be on that candidacy. Um, we found out this week that uh, she was actually pushed by the Americans uh, to take uh, to take the helm of NATO, and this did not happen because uh, Scholz, uh, current chancellor of uh, Germany, opposed it, uh, according at least to um, to some to some accounts. Um, yeah, that's what I think. It's ahead. What about you? Um, yeah. So aside from von der Leyen being in Berlin uh, today to get the blessing of her party, the, the Christian Democrats, which is an interesting relationship, right? Because they are against the Green Deal, and she's pushing the Green Deal quite hard. Um, there's also interesting movement uh, on the. EU-Israel relationship, uh, there are members of the European Parliament who have who are from member states that are far more critical of Israel than the EU overall, uh, looking for ways to penalize Israel, whether it's through sanctioning extremists, and most recently, what it looks like is there going to be some discussion about this uh, EU-Israel association agreement, which is kind of a partnership, uh, lays out like what the relationship looks like, bilateral relationship between Israel and the European Union. Uh, and apparently enough parliamentarians are getting on board to at least review that, whatever that might mean. So I'll be very curious to see what that actually means, if it comes of anything, uh, what the consequences could be, 
uh, and what those consequences even even would be like what potential violations could they find Israel to be in based on that agreement and of course this comes on the the heels of Yosef Borrell uh the EU's effective foreign minister if there if there were one uh saying you know if you don't like what Israel's doing in Gaza maybe send some maybe you shouldn't be arming them that was sort of the big quote to come out of uh, the last few days so this slow motion sort of uh, criticism rising up in the EU against against Israel keeps percolating. There seems to be really a critical mass. I mean, 78 MEPs by the last count and uh, from across the political spectrum. So quite certainly, I mean, you can detect a shift in the mood um, and probably a lack of patience. In any case, that's all for this week. Join us next week at Euroscopic in collaboration with the EU Observer. If you like what you hear, um, give us a like, subscribe, uh, or just uh, join us wherever is that your ears take you for podcasts. That's right, euroscopic.substack.com or, of course, euobserver.com as well. We're very glad you've joined us today. And many thanks to Anton Shikhoptov and to Ian Bremer for joining us and sharing their insights. See you guys next week. I'm Wayne Glickraft. I'm Martin Guy. Thanks very much.